Hi, this is Vanessa Marshall. I play Harrison Dula on Star Wars Rebels, and you're listening to the Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. Chewing. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with my co-host. He's the 13th man that could have prevented the Narkina 5 prison break. It's... It's it's uh, Scratchy Voice Drew. It's Scratchy Voice Drew who's getting over a little bit of illness, but is making his triumphant return. Let me, let me tell you, the fact that I can stand up and not fall over is a marked improvement over my condition the past few weeks, so... Oh, just man. so we're clear. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely something going around. Um, there's multiple people out at work every single day and stuff. Yeah. So it's, everybody... it's hard being a human and dealing with other humans these days. Yeah, it really is for a myriad of reasons. I don't recommend it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but Drew, speaking of other humans, uh, we are not alone today because we have a returning guest who is no longer a guest he is our newest co-host here on the Clashing Sabers podcast. You know him as the Jocasta New of Star Wars podcasting, because if he is not on a show, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Vor. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, good, good, good to be back, and also good to be good to be a part of the crew. I am, yeah, I am making my appearance now as as stuffy nose divorce. So, <laughs> with our powers combined, we are one decent human. <laughs> yes. I feel so left out. Now I kind of want to go get sick and so I can fit in with everybody. Oh, you're good, bro. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming. If it hasn't got you yet, it's coming. Oh, no. It's it's always happens. Like, it happens always around breaks, too. Like, I'm sure I'm going to get hit with something over Christmas because it's like my body stops and is like, oh, mm. we're supposed to be sick now because we've had all these germs because kids <laughs> are gross. Um, but yeah, no, DeVore, we're really excited to have you join the Clashing Sabres family. And uh, if you are uh, coming from uh, from Larger View of the Force over here, welcome. And uh, you'll be able to get Larger View of the Force on this feed and on its original feed as well. So uh, if you are new to the feed uh, here in Clashing Sabers, we have multiple shows that will be released here. You can get them all in one, including Larger View of the Force. And if you are uh, checking us out and you're like, mm, I like Devor and not the rest of these buttheads, um, then you, you can just stay over and listen to Larger View of the Force. But we would love to have you. So uh, welcome, everybody. Um, with that said, let's get into, uh, get into the most important thing we talk about on this show. Drew. Hey. What are you Star Warsing lately? I really thought you were just going to leave that there as I'm the most important thing we talk about on the show, and that's clearly not the case. No, you just sound very, uh, as we said, pre-show NPR, so. Listen, I, I apologize to our listening audience ahead of time. It's going to be a rough one, because I have a lot of things to say and to yell at you two of you idiots about, because I listen to you guys' um... Tales of the Jedi recap. You guys could not possibly be more wrong about this show. What? Jesus when I tell you, When I tell you that this show offended me, I'm not exaggerating one bit. The more time I spent with Tales of the Jedi, the more upset and frustrated I became on like a minute-by-minute -minute basis. 
it is the most frustrating, disappointing, upsetting. I would rather reread the Aftermath trilogy that I would rather have the author of the Aftermath trilogy explain the Aftermath trilogy to me than have to sit through these six episodes ever again in my life. Why? I cannot believe. Well, Brandon, I completely understand why you were so enthusiastic about this show. You are the audience, the target audience for those episodes. This show was written basically for you. So it makes sense. But Devor, <laughs> I had such high hopes for you. Sticking up for the rest of us who are like, it's called Tales of the Jedi. Surely this will be about, I don't know, Jedi. But in fact, it's about the two people who decidedly are not Jedi. Come on, guys. We, we, we talked about the name issues. It came up. It was... You guys glanced over it like it was a speed bump and not a huge gap in the road that your car would fall through. The potential of a series called Tales of the Jedi to focus on approximately 30 minutes in Star Wars history was so frustrating. I just wanted to scream and throw my Disney Plus subscription out through a window. I couldn't believe how angry that show made me. So, are you upset about the content of the show or that the content didn't match the name? I am upset about all of it, top to bottom. <laughs> the only part of this show I actually did appreciate is the one episode clearly you guys skipped. <laughs> was the one about practice makes perfect and how it's actually tying to something we've seen before and actually played a role in the character development. Everything else was already done in some other medium before. We know Dooku had his problems with the Jedi Order. We had a whole audio drama about that. We had books about that. Uh, we but know see, no, Ahsoka no, 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 no. had problems. There's a whole, I don't know if you know this, there's a whole six seasons of a cartoon that explains why Ahsoka left the Order and how she doesn't fit in. I should check that out. Um, You'd like it, Brandon. Yeah, I yeah, swear. You think? You think? <laughs> No, but like with Dooku, I think it adds to that it wasn't just one reason, it was a myriad of reasons. Because in the Dooku Jedi Lost audio drama, the main reason he leaves in that is because of his sister and them trying to revoke his ability to communicate with his, his family of birth and uh, that he essentially believes that he can do more for Sereno than he can for, uh, for the Jedi. And I think adding this extra layer of he was frustrated with the Senate um, and the corruption that was going on, it adds nuance to that and shows, which I think kind of goes along with Andor and part of the one of the things I really love about it, that no problem is just a one issue situation. I, like there's a myriad of reasons. I would be way more on board if we hadn't already had Attack of the Clones, which describes the problems in the Senate, and the entirety of the Clone Wars shows, which went through all of those things a billion times. How many episodes of Clone Wars are about the bad senator who does bad things and has to be brought to justice? Like half of them. Honestly, no. Not as many as you would think. There are so many Brandon, and any more than like two is too many. And if you're going to have six new episodes, you can't have two of them be about bad senators being bad. You can't do it. It's not good. 
it, it's just the uh, honest to God, I've never been this frustrated <laughs> with a piece of Star Wars content in my entire life, and it has really called into question Dave Filoni's ability to tell a story that's not about Ahsoka. I am so concerned that he has one road to walk, and that's all he can do, and that's all he wants to do. Like the the whole thing was just relentless mood music with faux philosophical dialogue and baseless brooding just nonstop and i was like this isn't fun no one's having fun this is not good is not great it's a, none of my kids enjoyed it none of them like they got through the first two and like yeah, this is boring and i said no 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 stick it out cuz i need to know what your opinions are on these things and they're like but why is why it's not fun <laughs> So they went back and watched more Rebels. But it doesn't always have to be fun. Some of the best... Think about the sentence you just said out loud. <laughs> no, some of Where the best Clone Wars <laughs> is not fun. Like the Pong Krell arc in Clone Wars, possibly the best one. Not a famously ton of fun. Famously my favorite part. Famously my favorite part of that entire show is that because of how interesting it is and the questions that it forces you to ask, which had never been asked in a Star Wars medium before. None of these six episodes of Tales of the Jedi introduce any new concepts for us to consider or to address. All of it is rehash. All of it is reheat. Uh, what it felt like to me is that Dave Filoni said, crap, it's COVID. Everything shut down. I should get my animation team some work so they have something to do so they can float through until things get back to normal. That's what this felt like to me. And I have said my piece, and I'm good to go now. Man. This is not I how I expected couldn't. this night to go. I know. It's kind of why I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> You're telling me in a show called Tales of the Jedi, you couldn't put in, I don't know, any of the High Republic characters and tell a story about any one of them. How about, I don't know, Luke? He's a Jedi, right, at some point? Okay, Yoda, okay. We could but, tell a story about Yoda but or now Rey you're, or Finn Now you're doing something different. Now you're going down a different road because... I know. This is part two. You thought I was done. <laughs> I lied to you. <laughs> The promise of Tales of the Jedi conjures up massive vistas of expectations. Right, of and what, what have we always be. said about expectations on this show, Drew? You gotta temper them. You yeah. gotta make sure they're not wild and out of control. If I told you there was a comic book series called Tales of the Jedi, which there was, what do you think it would be about? It's a series that ranges thousands of years and tells all kinds of different stories about characters you've never met before. It was new and exciting and different and weird and strange. And not all of it's good. I'll be honest with you on that. But come on, man. You went back and told the same stories of the same characters in the same settings with the same problems. What are you doing? But, but half, of, <laughs> half of Legends does that. Like, Legends follows the same... Here's the three-act play, like, we're going to have a... No, no, no. Uh, structure 60- and substance are two different things. No, I, the structure just gives into a lack of substance. It became a crutch. And well, I think... I don't disagree with that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, let's not pretend that all, you know, additional Star Wars content that adds on to the universe has been, has this, you know... Pantheon of great entries. I don't think anyone who's uh, uh, listened to two or more episodes of this will ever think that I've been on board that particular train. But man, I I cannot emphasize the level of disappointment that this show hath wrought. And I know you guys enjoyed it. And I'm really sorry to rain on you guys' parade. But it's not good. It's not a good show. You can direct all hate mail to 
Glashingsabers uh, at gmail.com. I'm not sure if that's our email address or not. It's definitely not, but you can still just direct them there because I don't want to read this trash. That's a good um, idea. <laughs> but like, I think I think Devor was the one that brought it up on the episode of like this has potential to be all of those other things. So I feel like this was because the story that we got was sorry the story of the creation not necessarily the story in in the uh actual episodes was that Filoni was just writing this stuff just because he had an idea in his head and there wasn't any plans to make a show and then they were like make a show out of it so I don't think it necessarily started with this idea of let's tell a bunch of different stories of Jedi I think it was Filoni kind of exploring how Dooku and Ahsoka's journeys are similar and maybe he has other plans with why he was doing that. Like he writes, he's known for like telling other stories off to the side that never actually get told, um, to just kind of understand characters more like Ahsoka meeting the Bandu. And I so know. I would challenge it. He doesn't tell stories. He writes, he draws doodles like, mm, but he has, story. he has stories around them. Sure. But that's, I don't feel like any of that is what we got. No, I, I don't, I'm not saying that it is, but I'm saying this is one of those instances where that idea was greenlit without him really even pushing for the idea. So I think if the show was successful, which I mean, obviously drew, you don't think it was, but I think most people, uh, that I've seen enjoyed or thoroughly loved the show, then we can get those other stories. We can get the Lukes. We can get the High Republics. We can get the different things. So I guess my question to you would be, would you watch that? Or is the Tales of the Jedi just bad batch for you where you're you're just done? Oh, man. I don't know. I, I, I would have no um, no push to watch it unless it is clearly described and produced as something wildly different than this first part. I mean, if there is even any kind of second part to be coming, I mean, at least with visions, you guys talked about visions a little bit. Like it is, it's different, right? It's, it's, it's dramatically different from what we've gotten in the past, both in substance and style. And there was a significant amount of, of support around it. You know, we've got toys and t-shirts and, and whatnot that accompanies it. We got nothing with Tales of the Jedi. Yeah. But I'm afraid it's because none of it's new. We got Ahsoka figures already. We've got Count Dooku action figures before. I mean, were there any new characters introduced that had names? I couldn't, like, mm. I, I don't really know that I could tell you any. It was neat to have Qui-Gon Jinn back, but honest to God, we had that in Kenobi and it was fine. That was cool. He was in, wasn't Qui-Gon in Clone Wars at some point as a Force Ghost? Yeah, I want to say the lost season. I don't remember. He's a voice in the lost season with Yoda. Uh, He actually shows up as a force ghost on Mortis. He shows up to Obi Wan. Okay. If they're gonna do more, okay, sure. You guys have fun with it. Let me know if it gets any different. Because yeah, you might be right. This is Bad Batch to me all over again. Even Bad Batch was more interesting than this. Devor, did you notice how he didn't say if it gets better, just if it gets interesting? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the way you, you, you phrased that you, there. You wouldn't be able to tell me if it got better because you guys already had it, like the pinnacle of storytelling creation. You guys were fawning over this thing. I was so surprised. 
even though we have a lot in common about what we like about Star Wars, I feel like we come to Star Wars for very different things. I mean, it's not politely agree with each other, Sabres. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, DeVore and I our kind of niche in in what we like in fandom usually matches up a little bit more so i'm not super surprised uh no i i said i should say i shouldn't be super surprised (laughs) um i am super surprised i did not expect this to go this way but yeah it absolutely tracks well i'm back baby (sighs) never let us feel like this is just a preview for the rest of the conversation I think Brandon saw a tweet of mine that ex- explain, expressed my, my concern on Andor most recently. Not concern, but a uh, uh, level of affection, we'll put it at that. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we can get right into that. Calm. Kindness, kinship. Love. I've given up all chance at inner peace. I made my mind a sunless space. I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my, my eagerness to fight. They set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, there's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. I burn my decency for someone else's future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Now the ego that started this fight will never have a, a mirror or an audience or the light of gratitude. So what do I sacrifice? Everything! Alright, we are back and we are talking about Andor and we are using our best and butts format where we give our three things that we don't like, thought could have been better, or uh, would you know change in any way. And then we get into our three best things about the the, uh, the season and the series thus far. So we'll start out with our butts, and we go from our least egregious to most egregious. And uh, I don't know about you guys, but the butts were actually harder on this for me. Uh, most of the time, the things that I dislike are pretty big, glaring things. And it wasn't so much uh, the case for Andor for me. So it's going to be an interesting conversation tonight so devore mm-hmm. i'm gonna let you go ahead and go first since you are our new co-host with your butt number three yeah so i'm gonna first start off by saying that i had the same experience as you which is that i had just the the profoundly difficult exercise of finding three things i didn't like about Andor, and so as a <laughs> consequence my three butts are on different spectrums of fairly done but alas, there are still three butts. So my number three butt is, it's, again, like I said, it's a dumb one, the Death Star post credit scene. Oh, interesting. That's and a hot take, though. That is a hot take. The, the only reason I put this one as a butt is because I feel like the show all throughout the season did a really good job of avoiding taking the narrative easy road 
And then in the last seconds, it took the narrative easy road of saying, of course, it's the bleeding Death Star that they're working on, you know? Um, It's a cool shot. I love that shot of the exploded view of, you know, the main station and then all the parts of it all. Like, it looks really cool. But I did also have a moment of like, yeah, this kind of feels like the easy option that that's what they were working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think... When Mark texted the group and was like, hey, there's going to be a post credit scene on Andor tomorrow, I was like, oh, okay, cool. They're going to set up, you know, season two. We're going to get a, a teaser of some sort about what's going to happen or we're going to get some kind of, uh, you know, Boba Fett at the end of, of Mando announcement of something that's coming. And this was kind of like, okay, like. In my head canon, they already were parts for the Death Star, so I didn't ah, really, really feel that excited about it. Drew, how did you? I think I think Devor I think is right that it, it definitely is the easy way out, and it's kind of like, well, yeah, of course it's the Death Star because that's all we do in Star Wars is build Death Stars and blow them up. <laughs> but at the same time, I feel like that's exactly what a post-credit scene should be, like. Mm. I'm not wild about the you've got to watch the post credit scene because it builds the connectivity to the next installment aspect of things. Like the Marvel okay. Universe has really poisoned that. I think a post credit scene should be, hey, you know what? You saw all these names of people who made it and we appreciate that. So, hey, look at this cool thing we did for fun. So I agree. It's not like it's like predictable and like, yeah, of course. Makes sense. Sure. Why not? Move along. But that's exactly what I would want out of a post credit scene. I don't really think I, I, I agree it's not great, um, but I, it, it's not egregious enough to be bad. The thing that I like about it is that they were making such like seemingly insignificant parts to the Death Star. You know, like it's not like they were working on the dish. They were working on like just little cogs that hold things together. Mm-hmm. Like it was it wasn't it was building kind of the weight of what Cassian had been through. Like he he went through what for him was this extremely, I guess, traumatic, stressful experience, you know, that built him and hardened him into being a rebel. And it's like it's almost insignificant in the eyes of the galaxy. So I if that idea gets expanded on in season two, I think maybe retroactively this could be a good thing. Um, mm. But personally, I feel like this is just like a shot that we're going to get and then we're never going to see anything about it again because I mm. don't think Tony Gilroy cares that much to right. <laughs> to add that you know whole level. And I, I'll be happy if we get you know more cameos in connections to Rogue One next season. I don't really care if we get more Death Star stuff. I was kind of hope like in the part of my brain that hope like the very small part that was like, it'd be cool if they explained what those little gadgets were that they were making. I really thought that towards the end of that Narkina five arc, they would show another pod and their job was to disassemble those things into their individual pieces. And it's just this endless cycle of busy work oh. for their prisoners. It's kind of like, cause you get the moment where the prisoners realize they're being released, but only to be transferred to a different mm-hmm. block. And it, it's the same kind of thing as like, we're not just moving the human pieces from place to place. It's the mechanical pieces of place to place as well to kind of demonstrate the absolute cruelty of the system. So it, the easy road is definitely the best way to describe it. But again, it's it's not uh, offensive. All right, Drew, take it away with your number three. Listen, I have a groundbreaking uh, never before happened moment in Clashing Sabers history. Are you ready for this? 
I honestly don't know anymore. Listen, I, I went back and forth on this long and hard, and I thought all week I've tried, like, you guys are saying how hard it was to come up with your bottom three. I have no bottom third. <laughs> I have none. I have two issues with this show, and that's it. I, I, I can think of no third thing that bothers me enough to have it on this list at all. Drew, did you just run out of time? You just you didn't have... <laughs> it's possible I fell unconscious for three days in a row. I'm not sure what happened. But no, I, I was re-watching episodes over the past couple of days. I, Brandon, I was taking notes and writing down dialogue. <laughs> Look at you! I have just a page and a half of good dialogue that we're going to talk about in like 15 minutes. Um, I have no third but. I can't do it. Brandon, what's your number three? <laughs> uh, so again, like all of these are are going to be minor quibbles, and a lot of them are just personal preference. Uh, and number three is that it's the disappearance of Melshi. Um, mm. Oh, interesting. Because okay. I wanted Melshi to go back to Ferrix with Cassian, and, and I'm sure he's coming back in season two, and we're going to get more of the kind of dynamic duo vibe that I think this is setting up. But I think it would have been cool to have Melchi go back with Cassian so that the characters like Brasso and all of them on Ferrix could see that Cassian was kind of getting his life figured out and that he had people who had his back like he did on Ferrix. And at the end of the day, I don't know if it would have made the show any better, uh, but I do think it would have been an interesting dynamic to include, especially if like I feel like they're going to do, that is going to get expanded on more in season two. Um, mm. Because we are going to spend, more, we're jumping ahead in the timeline and we're going to spend more time with the the rebellion and Melshi is, well, one, Melshi is, you know, the most prominent side character in um, Rogue One. He's featured throughout the whole film. But also, uh, I was listening to another podcast that was talking about his role get, got increased in Rogue One because Tony Gilroy liked the actor a lot and wanted to give oh, him some more stuff to do. So I definitely I think that. it's not a coincidence that that particular character is the one that was brought back. I think there's a lot of purpose to that, both in the story and with who Tony Gilroy wanted to to work with and stuff. So um, hmm. it would have been cool, but again, very. When is he introduced in Rogue One? Isn't it just like after the whole Yavin 4 conference? No, he co breaks Jin out of uh, the Wobani tank. Really? Yeah. I he, don't think I ever oh, realized him? that. Yeah, yeah. He's he's the one that says, Liana Halleck, do you want to come with us or you want to get out of here or whatever it is he says. That's when he's first introduced. <laughs> and then... Um, that's Melshi? Yeah, that's Melshi. Oh, wow. Uh, I got to rewatch Rogue One tonight. Hang on. I know. It's a hard life. He's not on the team that goes to Edu, though, is he? No. No. No, no. No. He shows up. He is there to break Jin out, and then, then he comes back after um, on Yavin when Cassian brings all the rest of them. And, right. And shares, like, how the many master switch. They're looking yeah. for the master switch. Yeah. Which, oh, I rewatched Rogue One a couple weekends ago. It really bothers me now that he was just, like, killed off screen. Like, you, you don't get to see Melchi perish. You just see his dead body. It's like, oh, so tragic. But 
Huh. Yeah, re- rewatch it. Rewatch it looking for yeah. Melshi and it'll it'll <laughs> add. It's it's definitely worth your time. So, uh, all right. Melshie. Let's uh, keep going and Devor, uh, you're number two. All right, my number two, and I'm gonna put the asterisk on this that this one, you know, my feelings about this might change given what may or may not be done in season two. So, <laughs> uh, and no, I'm afraid my, all of your opinions have to be locked in stone and are never allowed to be changed. I'm they are recorded on the that. internet, and everything on the internet is serious and never changes. I don't think so. Devor read the contract very clearly, Brandon. <laughs> no, obviously not. That fine print. But my number two butt goes to the Canari subplot that goes nowhere. <gasps> Ooh. Because, you know, we get, of course, in the first arc, you know, we get all the flashbacks on Canari where we get to see the young Cassa and his sister and all that. I mean, the very first thing that we get introduced to in the comics of Cassian is he's at the, you know, at the corporate strip club looking for the, you know, for his sister. And, you know, we get all the stuff that happens, you know, in Canari and the stuff that we kind of learn about Canari, you know, we learn that it's, you know, it's it's this kind of abandoned, condemned planet, you know, a la basically like if Chernobyl were a planet, it's this kind of you know, no-go zone. And we're told that it's because of a mining accident, but then, you know, you you know, naturally part of you wonders, well, was it a mining accident, mining accident, or was it like a Jedi mining accident, you know? And then, like, there's all this stuff that happens on there where, you know, you get the whole story about the crashed ship, and we're told that, you know, the Republic is after them, you know, when Marva and Clem are on there, but it's very clearly they're all wearing, you know, they've got those CIS patches on them, and they're the strange color, like they're humans, but they're this kind of yellow skin color, so you're like, what's going on with the kind of you know, the the Republic separatist discrepancy of it all, and, like, what are they doing there? And, you know, none of that ends up being, you know, circled back to in any sort of way. And really, even, like, the whole thing with Cassian and his sister, at least, again, you know, season two might change this in terms of what they do, but the real resolution that we get all to that is that moment in the kind of interlude episode where Marva's like, stop looking for your sister. Yeah. And that just ends there. And because I, I remember that's why this ended up in my bottom uh, in my bottom number three, which, or, or my bottom three, which is that like I had some moment after the finale aired where I was just thinking about and I was like, wait, what happened to the Canari stuff? Mm-hmm. Like, there, there's a lot of threads there about like what happened on the planet? What happened to the kids? Why is it the case that no one can know that Cassian is from Canari? You know, like there's all this stuff that gets introduced and then doesn't really totally get resolved, at least in this arc of the story. This is exactly my number two as well. No way! Oh, it's wow. my number two as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, t- I titled it Dropping the Sister Thread um, because it's his whole motivation for three episodes in, the, in a row, and he joins the team to do the Aldani heist, in order to fund his search for his sister. And then when he gets his cut of the money, what does he do? He goes to the vacation planet and just chillaxes for a little bit and then gets turned in prison. Like, what happened? And it's, it stands out because so much of the rest of the show relies on the rest of the show. Like, it all works together and there's mm. not a lot of waste. You know, Mon Mothma's story is very specific in what it's doing and all of its pieces are important. Luthen's story is the same, and Cassian's story is the same way, uh, except for 
this, like you said, Devor, like we learn all this information where like mysteries are planted and questions are asked and, and very clearly raised. And it's his defining characteristic. We know he says in Rogue One, he's been in this fight since he was six years old. Well, what happened when he was six years old was a sister. And so how does the, the issue with his sister propel him throughout the career in the rebellion? We don't have a good answer to that yet. Whereas the rest of the show, every question it raises, it answers. And I, it's one of the things I like about it so much is, is the economy of storytelling there. But for this one particular issue. Brandon, what did you have about it, too? I mean, really the same kind of thing that you guys are saying. I, I think the point of it for this season was to show how he and Marva came together. Uh, but I I feel like if, if it were to be just this, then the whole sister storyline was just a plot device that really was unnecessary because you could have just had Marva be his mother and it changes nothing in the story exactly um all of that is is set up as mystery and you know i look to to book of boba fett because book of boba fett stops having the flashbacks but it tells a very clear story in the flashbacks before it ends it you know, like mm-hmm. there's a clear end point to why Boba is no longer with the Tusken Raiders and how that event um, and that massacre motivates him going forward. And you don't need to go back anymore. We need right, to go it, back. And it informs his character. And it, you understand why he is, Fett that is, you understand why Fett is the way he is in that show. And it's because of what he learns from the Tusken Raiders there. I don't know that we can have the same level of connection between the Canary flashbacks and Cassian where he is when the story picks him up. Right. A hundred percent. And you, I don't think somebody as skilled as Tony Gilroy, who showed throughout this whole series about how well he can tie things together because like, Every time you open the you know Twitter feed now, there's new revelations of like, oh my god, I didn't even notice this, or somebody has an, another perspective about Andor. It's like, God, this is so well written, and that's like the the main thing about the show. Like, people love the show because of how well written it was. I, I highly, highly doubt this is the end of it, but if it is, it's if it is it goes to my number 1 let's put it that way oh, interesting. like it, interesting. it would cause it in retrospect to be my number 1 um thing that i wouldn't like about season 1 but it stays at my number 2 because i have the optimism of what is to come in the future yeah that's a fair assessment there the opportunity for redemption in this particular bit of information keeps it from being awful yeah that's the first time ever we've all had the same uh same number in it's the wild. same place so wow. We're already on our number ones, and uh, Divorce, groundbreaking. since you started this, we're going to let you take it. All right, so my top number one, or my bottom number one, is not... <laughs> it's very good. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Is not really about the show per se, like anything that really happens in it. It is more about, I guess, a certain kind of conversation that has had about the show, which is that... Okay. There is, at least, there is within a certain segment of Andor fandom. I, I don't, I don't want to paint with a broad brush because you know we're, we're fans of Andor too, and I don't want to count myself in in doing this. Is that there has been 
even before the show started airing, but then especially once it started airing, there's been a certain slice of Andor fan that has had a certain kind of snobbery and elitism about Andor. Like what? there's, I think like, you can you can see this stuff on Twitter. Like like there there are certain people like for whom loving and consuming Andor's become this kind of status symbol of like this is our Star Wars and like finally we have the kind of mature adult Star Wars and like here it is like above you know the kind of you know the, the plebs who just enjoy their Mandalorians and you know I their like their bad batches calling me out in real time. <laughs> Um, and I do feel mostly that way. <laughs> Keep your clones of wars course. and your, you know, resistances and whatnot. Your big boys will be playing over here in the Andor land. Okay, so I guess my number one butt is Drew. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's just something. Yeah, I've 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 not enjoyed that that kind of like. I mean, it is perfectly fine to you know, it's perfectly fine to say like. Yes, I, I enjoy, I find it and or to be better than other Star Wars shows or that it does certain things, you know, it executes its own story better than other Star Wars shows. I have no problem with saying things like that. But yeah, it's the kind of like, yeah, the the the, the kind of effetism, at least within mm -hmm. some corners of and or fans, including possibly one person who is on this recording. <laughs> yes, kind of bothers Brandon. me. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm I, so I, I, I definitely. Yeah, yeah, you definitely. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're right, but it, it is so good that the yeah. danger is. It's kind of the nationalism issue. The thing I love is so good, and therefore everything else is garbage, and that's not a fair if then statement. Mm -hmm. So you're right that it is, there's definitely a little bit of an opportunity for the elitist attachment here. And, and but man, has there been, when was the last time a Star Wars product was released like this that had the width of critical acclaim that this has had? Like if you think about the difference like oh. when the prequels came out. Yeah. The divisiveness between... And, and again, if we're going to segment it into stereotypical groups, you have your original trilogy fans and your prequel fans, and both of them think that theirs, quote, you know, quote theirs, is better than the other one, and the other one is garbage. Uh, I mean, Clone Wars cartoon, people who, you know, that was for when it came out, Brandon, that was for you as your bread and butter, and, you know, it's like the best thing in the world. Yeah, yeah but know, has there been something that has I, I feel like and this I may think just be Mandalorian my, you could argue has had that's the closest right yeah, yeah but it's a different kind of conversation it and or in is, what way because Mandalorian is more recognized and critically acclaimed as a a popcorn blockbuster if you will and Andor is more of your your Oscars nominated kind of thing. Okay. Right? And so they have they both have value, right? Like having Parasite and having Avengers Endgame doesn't make one or the other better or worse. They're just two very different pieces of media that are doing two very different things. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't like you were saying that doesn't negate from the other one but it, it it's like the conversation about you know do you like clone wars or rebels more it's like i i can't really answer that because i like them for such similar but different reasons 
like the one of the main reasons I love Rebels is because it is the continued story. But I love Clone Wars for being more of an anthology, an equal amount to liking Rebels for being a continued story. Like it's interesting. It doesn't. It's a false equivalency, like you said, and and there is definitely something going around of like, hmm, this is what Star Wars should be from now on. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think I understand that then a little better than okay. Well, no, I don't want all Star Wars to be like Andor. I don't want that. That's for sure. Everything has its place, right? We should make sure that each creative endeavor has its own opportunities to flourish and to please the audience that it's intended for. It is kind of nice that there's something new that's not necessarily for the 9 to 14-year-old demographic. That's all I'm saying. No, that's fair. And I think this kind of leads into my number one, so I'm going to jump into it, which is the lack of humor. Because I feel like that's one of Mm. the things that is... Oh, weird. Allowing... Okay. Okay. Allowing for people to have that conversation is... That this doesn't have the the silliness or the quippy one-liners that a lot of Star Wars has. Um, humor has been a part of Star Wars, even in you know the quote-unquote darkest Star Wars film we have of Rogue One. Humor is an important element, and a lot of people are saying you know like that this doesn't feel like Star Wars, and it does feel like Star Wars because it connects with the universe and it has the important thematic elements of most, if not all, of Star Wars. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't call this show fun to watch. And when I say fun to watch, I don't mean that it's not a good show. I uh, love this show and I watched each episode three straight days at three o'clock in the morning because I wanted oh to make sure gosh, I took in everything. You're, you're an insane person. That, but that's the level to which I liked this show. Okay. So, but you don't walk away from each episode feeling good and happy and joyous like you do with a Mandalorian episode because it's dealing with some very weighted subject matter. It's presenting it in very dark tones, which is not a bad thing because like you are saying, Drew, you don't, want all Star Wars to be the same, but all Star Wars that we've had unto this point, you know, with minor exceptions here and there and like, you know, Clone Wars and Rebels and longer things like that, 90 to 95% of the Star Wars that we've gotten ends on a note of hope and optimism. Rogue One ends on hope and optimism. Even Revenge of the Sith ends on hope and optimism. Mm -hmm. Last Jedi, hope and optimism. Like, that's always a thread that goes through and Andor has no interest in doing that. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I would challenge that notion. Those last moments where Cassian is on the ship with Luthen and he's like, you either shoot me or you pull me in full time. I was like, dang son, get it. Because (laughs) that's when he really, he has bought in. And he knows that the fight is worth it, no matter what it costs, that the, the, the tyranny of the Empire is worth all costs, including not just sacrifice of himself, but of his family. It costs his family their lives. And he's finally, through you know, these 12 episodes, he's made that journey from, I'm in this to, you know, for one goal. I'm in it to get paid. He's very Han Solo, right? Yeah. And the Aldani rush. But at the end of that show, at the end of season one here, 
He's not a new hope, you know, Han Solo. He's, you know, you know, I've got a strike team assembled. I just don't have a crew for the ship, Han Solo. He's like, he's in the mission, and this is what he's going to spend his life doing. If that's not hope and optimism, man, I don't know what is. But I would argue it's, that it's bleak. It's super bleak. Don't get me wrong. It's yeah. not sunshine and puppies and, and Ewok dancing celebrations. No denying that. But I mean. If we're going to say Revenge of the Sith ends on hope and optimism, then I think Andor does too. My argument against that would be that most of the Star Wars that we have, the hope and optimism is focused on the potential of what the future could be, right? So you look at Revenge of the Sith, it's the potential of Luke and Leia to be that new hope that we know that they're going to become Mm -hmm. even rogue one we we see all the characters you know spoiler alert the characters die in rogue one um (laughs) and you know vader goes on his tear but we end with leia and it's it's an hope and optimism in the sense of we are fighting for something valiant and a greater purpose and it's an inspired kind of hope and optimism whereas the way that i read and i took the casting at the end is more he's going in this with vengeance in mind with more of an anger and frustration oh, wow. side of thing. not necessarily really? not necessarily that he like is going in it just to get revenge but he's not joining the fight because he believes in this future republic or anything he's going in it because he hates the empire do we not get that with marva's post-mortem speech because oh, she yeah. has the whole thing about the like we've been asleep and but now we're awake and she has some sort of line about like I want to see like a new day for Ferrix or something like that I don't remember it it's something like that but don't we get that kind of like hope optimism fighting for the future thing from her speech the way she's trying to rally everybody um, yeah I think it's so. not well I only say this because I did type out the entire thing earlier today. Um, <laughs> It's her speech is not so much. There's a better tomorrow if you fight for it. Her speech is much more. We don't even realize the level of oppression we're suffering under right now. Um, her call to action of fighting the empire is not so much bring back happy days, make Ferrex great again. It's much more. Um, let me let me see if I can find the line. Um, there's a wound that won't heal at the center of the galaxy. There is a darkness reaching like rust into everything around us. We let it grow, and now it's here. It's here, and it's not visiting anymore. It wants to stay. The Empire is a disease that thrives in darkness. And it goes on and on, but it's it's not necessarily... Uh, I, I don't think I would call it a hope and optimism speech, because it's more of like, you're fighting for your very existence, um, it's almost more like today we celebrate our Independence Day kind of speech, you know. I okay. was literally just thinking of that same thing. I right. was like, it's Independence Day. It's very much that scene. It's like, you know, we will not go quietly into the night kind of thing. So yeah. I, I would say like she's ramping up to it. If she had like another minute or two of tape that she could have gotten into B2, it, it could have been happy sunshine, you know, you know we can make things awesome again, but uh, not as what we got on screen. Hmm. All right. Let's go ahead and jump into our best stuff then. Um, Hang on. Hang on. No, 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 no. Oh, 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 what am I? Oh, you played along. You have another one. I I have at least one other. (laughs) 
Oh, okay. <laughs> gripe. I do have two out of three grape spots um, filled on my bracket today. And you got to hear me out. Like, I'm going to say what it is, and you're going to be like, shut up. You're so stupid. Hear me out. Shut up. You're so stupid. Oh, sorry. That was early. My, yeah, yeah, I literally just told you to wait. You can't even do that. Here's my number one gripe with, with Andor season one. It's Andy Circus. Now, hear me out. Bro. Bro. Listen, did I... I like that I have somebody else to sigh here. (laughs) Divorce bringing the sigh game strong. I know, it's good, it's good. Listen, Andy Serkis is great. He's a lot of fun. Andy Serkis is Andy Serkis in every single role he plays. And there's usually nothing wrong with that. However, Andy Serkis is already in Star Wars. If you're going to have the same actor do a different guy, it's got to be a different guy. You can't just do a slightly less gravelly Snoke impression and have no dots on your face and pretend it's somebody completely different. I'm not wild about the idea of having somebody as recognizable as Andy Serkis play another character in the same universe. Imagine if... Harrison Ford had a smaller cameo role in Empire Strikes Back. It wouldn't be good. You'd be like, that's Harrison Ford. What's he doing in this? He's already in these movies. Come on, guys. Now, there are some people who have played more than one character, even within the same film. Silas Carson is the actor who plays Key Adi Mundi in the prequel movies, but he also plays Newt Gunray, the body for Newt Gunray, and he also plays the pilot, or the co-pilot, rather, of the Radiant 7, which is the ship that gets destroyed at the very beginning of Phantom Menace. So at a moment, he himself, as an actor, is talking to another character that he himself is playing. So that's a weird thing, but if you look at those two characters and you listen to those two characters, you cannot tell they are the same human being because the voices are not the same and the bodies are not equal. But if you listen to Snoke and you listen to Kino... I think that's his name. I didn't actually write his name. Yeah, Kino Loy. Yep. Kino Loy. If you listen to the two of them, you can absolutely tell it's the same human being. So in a world where we have amazing actors in the show, and all of them are good, everybody's bringing their A game, and we're going to talk about more of that later. Could we not find somebody other than Andy Serkis to play the character? Like, is there no one else we could have gone with that would have been as impressive, especially when they're running through the halls screaming one way out, one way out? No, there's not. <sighs> Sorry. I, I, I defy thee. I believe that there indeed could have been somebody else. He's great. He's fine. He's fun to watch. I just wish he hadn't already been Snoke for a couple movies. If we could change Snoke to a different actor in the eventual re, I don't know, remake of 7, 8, and half, or that, that one tiny section of 9 that he's in, <laughs> that would be okay. <laughs> The tiny sections. He's in sections in nine. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Jesus, save me from this tribulation. That's it. That That is the totality of my, my number one worst thing is Andy Serkis is like, oh, what are you doing in this this show? I you don't it. belong here. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> but let's move on. Yep. Okay. Devor, what's your best number three? All right, so my best number three actually goes back to something that, Brandon, you and I had talked a little bit about when we were talking about Andor on the previous episode, which is that I love 
the way that this show really allows us to marinate with our characters and with our settings. I love that it just has the time and the space to be able to do that. And like, so I, like I would take as, you know, I mean, there's many examples of this throughout the show, but I think probably the best is that first Ferrix arc where, you know, in retrospect, I mean, even at the time when it first aired, you know, a lot of the critique of people saying, oh, it goes too slow. But I would say the, the on the contrary, I love that we get to spend so much time in places like mm-hmm. Morlana One and Ferrix, and we're with all these characters, and we see them in their situations. And there's a lot of there's a lot of really good, and this is something that I, just lately I've really been attuned to when it happens in storytelling, and really enjoy. There's just a lot of really good like show don't tell storytelling happening yes. in terms of learning like how Cassian lives in this world, how it operates, how people react to him. Even something like you know we were you know we were being you know, critical of the Canari subplot, but like in those flashbacks, it's all show don't tell. There are no subtitles, which I find a fascinating decision. Everything you know about these kids and about their little Lord of the Fly society and how they operate, you all have to glean from what is happening on the screen. You do not know what they are saying to one another. You have to read everything from their facial expressions and their body language and the ways that they're interacting. So like all that stuff where we spend the time with a Cassian, the way we spend the time with a Cyril Karn, and we get like, I think about that moment, you know, when they're on the uh, on the transport, when they're going down, and you know, he gives that really uncomfortable speech, and everybody is made to awkwardly <laughs> yeah, clap to him. About that. <laughs> it's like, that is, again, that's a great little like show-don't-tell moment where like you're learning so much about this person through seeing him interact in this particular environment. And like you could imagine a world in which other Star Wars shows, all that Ferrick stuff might happen in max two episodes, maybe even one episode. Mm. But we got three episodes, and we really got to simmer in this, and I think it paid off. And the show does that at other points throughout, but I think that's a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think when you come back around to the finale and all of those things, you know, that you saw throughout those first three episodes comes into play, um, it becomes really powerful. Like the the guy that Cassian owes money and he Mm -hmm. is now betraying him to the Empire. Like, you know that he's just one of many people that has problems with Cassian. And it's kind of like... It was fated for this. It was doomed, you know, no matter what, like somebody was going to give in to the pressure. But then you also, you know, you make things like what happens with Bix just so much more painful because you spent three episodes caring about her and getting to know her. And and like you said, seeing how other people react to her, you, you kind of feel bad for her, you know, because of what happened with Tim and the whole situation there oh, and how yeah. mm-hmm. he misunderstood what right. was going on, but he also betrayed her, but she cared for him and like she watched him die in front of him. It's a very complicated thing, right? Like it's not easy and it just pulls on your heartstrings and and when you have a moment like when that helmet is put on her and you don't hear anything, you don't hear the screams, you hear her screams, that's going to be a strong moment no matter what. Like, that's just a very well-written moment. But it's painful because of what we've been through in those first three episodes and the time that we've taken with the characters. Well, even, like, when 
when the show wraps up on his on that home planet, like you realize that everything that we learned plays a role and matters mm-hmm. to what yeah. happens and the decisions. I mean, like you look at Brasso, like he becomes you know king of Ferrix in a moment, mm-hmm. but it absolutely makes sense because of what we already seen him do for other people. We see how soft and how much he cares about the people in his home in his town. And he takes the brick and just starts wailing on guys. I mean, it's incredibly moving to know how much of that matters and that the catalyst for revolution is, is, is the natural death of the, of the mom of the town. It's just every, you know, everybody's mom who everybody loved. And we saw them love her. And we know it was hard. And that's what it was that pushes them over. It's not some... You know, it's not the destruction of Alderaan, which galvanized systems to join the rebellion. It's not, I can't even think of any other examples of like what it is that pushes people into fighting the empire, but it's like, it's just the overwhelming sense of this really is somebody's home and they're going to fight for it tooth and nail. And you feel that in those moments. And it's only because we got to spend the time and let those moments breathe early on. It's so good. Well, now I'm going to juxtapose it, Drew, to the Onderon arc in Clone Wars, because that's I'm watching that right now, and there's similar vibes of a rebellion forming and people getting frustrated that the the leadership of the planet is just being taken over, in the case of Onderon, by the Separatists and stuff. But for in that arc, it's about the the king and the king that is he replaces and it's about these leaders that uh, and these figureheads that they're galvanizing behind they're not doing that in andor mm-hmm. they're getting behind regular everyday people and mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a narrative shortcut to have it be a king or a jedi or whatever when you're like this is just a brasso it, it you need that time. Otherwise, it all falls flat. Right. And you don't Absolutely. understand the pain that it costs Brasso to to get down on his knees and try to, you know, help a droid through a, a, a traumatic situation and the loss of yeah. his, his, you know, like, the, the, the moment in the sewer where he's repeating Marva's words, it's like, he he loves Cassian in a way like Marva did. So it's it's kind of like those words are coming from both of them. It's just it's insanely powerful and it doesn't happen mm-hmm. without that. And it kind of leads into mine, which is just the subtlety of this show. Like this mm-hmm. show does not give you anything. You have to pay attention and you have to make inferences about what these characters mean and how things are changing and even what motivates them. And for me, the perfect example of that is Deidre Miro because she starts out as this character that you're kind of rooting for because she's being yeah. held back by the other <laughs> ISB officers. Yeah. And then you turn around and she's a full-on fascist and <laughs> you're like, wait, why do I still like it when she's on screen? It's very Quentin Tarantino of like, oh, you want to root for people? I'll give you somebody to root for. Oh, it turns out they're the devil. How do you feel now? Right. Like, it's it's... You so do, good. You don't even see it happen until you go back in and watch it in its entirety, and you're like, 
Oh my god! Like, well, I don't know. It's pretty clear when she uses the screaming of the screams of children as torture mechanisms. I mean, that's a pretty big red flag. This is not a good cat. No, but I, I think by that point she's already in the full on like you're like, oh no, she's she's a fascist. Oh, she's, oh okay, <laughs> yeah. I think the first, like, you know, what, three episodes or whatever before she really goes to Ferrix and starts um, that whole endeavor, you're kind of like, oh, I kind of feel like she's being held down by the man. And then all of a sudden you're like, no, 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 please hold her back. Like, did stop you, this. Did you guys think at any point, like, early on like that, did you guys ever think maybe she's the spy in the ISB? Like, maybe no, she's not. No. Is? No. Mm-mm. Oh man, that is, I totally got the vibe of like, she's on the inside feeding intel to Luther, and it turns out it was her assistant that was. No, telling. you know why I, I never thought that? It's too easy. And the show doesn't do easy. Like, the obvious thing would okay. be for it to, for, for it to be Deidre. Oh, okay. And, and I just, I appreciate that it wasn't that. And, and, you know, similarly, you have the death of Marva that we were talking about before. That's mm. another thing where you don't really know what's happening until the whole story's told. And it, it, you know, it's funny. Star Wars is it's poetry. It rhymes. And I think about like poetry as something you have to have the whole to be able to understand the individual parts. And for Marva's death, like you get her death and it's just so hollow at first. Yeah, that, that, that's so brilliant. The way that you learn it by literally seeing it through B2. Brilliant. You don't get to say goodbye. You don't get to see her reunite with Cassie. Like, she's just gone. And then, you know, you you feel what B2's feeling. You end up feeling what Cassian feels later on. And they don't do it by going, you should be sad for this character. They make you sad like that character. Mm-hmm. That is just, it's it's insanely, insanely powerful. Um, and, and something that this show just does, you know far better than any other Star Wars show has ever done. I think that's an easy statement to make. Like, I think the other shows, you know, look at, 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 you know, things like Bad Batch and Mandalorian and stuff. I've written articles on, you know, the deeper symbolism and stuff there. But that's that kind of stuff you have to do research on. You have to really look. You have to, you know, this is stuff that is the bread and butter of the show uh, that you need to understand it to understand the show. And I like that. I like the challenge when watching something, especially something I care about as star, you know, as much as star Wars of really dig into this and really pay attention to every detail. Cause every detail matters. Well, I better pitch my number three before we get too, too much further away. Um, mine is, uh, I think most of these, most of my top ones here, I can, I can, there's a big picture and then a specific example that I want to like at least make sure we mention of. And the big picture for number three is the quality of actors um, Mm, that are assembled in this picture. And it is just Diego Luna all the way down. Like he is a hero in my book. Like this is possibly one of the most compelling um, performances in a star Wars thing that I can possibly think of like that moment, just rewatching them that last episode where, uh, Brass is trying to escape with a couple people on the ship out of the out of the junkyard, and they hear somebody coming because the dogs start barking, and it's it's just him. It's Cassian, you know, dragging Bix behind him, and the music doesn't swell; it changes a little bit in its dynamic, and it's it's um, 
it's court assignment and progression, but only a little bit. But it's so moving just to know that it's Cassian coming around the corner, that he's okay and he's going to get her out. And it's just so moving. He has just a few bits of dialogue there, but it's so compelling to watch him work. Um, I don't know that any, all of them are good. Everybody's good. I could just w- watch his sequences over and over again. And, and Luthen by Stellan Skarsgård is just uh, an inspiration. And I don't know if you guys like no Marva like it hit me like a ton of bricks haha that Marva's actress is the same person who plays Aunt Petunia from the I Harry Potter know. series how weird is that and I was like I'm sorry I can't reconcile these two characters in my same yeah. brain that's how good she is like um the the actress's name's Fiona Shaw and it's just everybody all the way down this is the best cast I think we've had in the Star Wars since I don't know when yeah, and, and other than Cassian, these are all original characters, you know? Like, it's not like... Well, there's a couple repeats, but even the, they're, they're all good, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Mon Mothma comes yeah. back Oof. for a role that she pioneered in a deleted scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you gotta think about the staying power of an actor in a role that nobody saw. <laughs> That's insane to think about, and yet... Mon Mothma's story is so compelling to watch her just absolutely panic on the inside and all you get on the outside is like her eyelid flips up and down like one time but we were watching her watching her we know what that means it's just it's brilliant brilliant they deserve all the awards um, I don't know what awards you get for TV shows anymore all of them should go to these guys they're so good well I'm gonna jump to my number two then my number two is everything but Cassian and what does that mean it means that tread lightly counselor no 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 this is not I'm not saying that Cassian's story wasn't good I'm not saying (laughs) that um Diego Luna didn't do a great job I actually think it says a lot about the entirety of the show, which is why it makes it on my list here at number two, that the title character, whose story is so excellently told and compelling and moving, is the least interesting storyline in the show to me. You have the mm, Deidre's story is insanely compelling. I love every moment that she's on screen because you just... You don't know the, whether you're rooting for it or it's a car crash and it just, it, it you can't turn away. Mon Mothma, like you were mentioning, like, holy cow, I love every single moment we spent with her and want an entire show of that. Um, getting to see what it really cost her to, to be a part of the rebellion. Um, God, Cyril Karn, I just was like, Every moment he was on screen. It has never been so compelling to watch somebody eat cereal. I know. Like, you're watching it and you're like, this is amazing. And he's like (laughs) eating blue, like, Captain Crunch or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, Cocoa Puffs in blue milk. It's just insane. But when you think about, you know, if you think about where... Diego Luna is at on on the scale of great acting in this show. Like he is top tier. And it's almost like he gets outshined by everybody else because just everything in this show works so freaking well. Mm-hmm. Um that like I know it's kind of unfair to have a butt in me my best, but like 
I think it's important to to say like you're talking about the actors and obviously the actors are doing a good job but just the character development which yeah. goes into everybody you know it goes into the music it goes into the actors the writers the producers the directors like this is a great show not just because of a single element you know Tony Gilroy deserves a lot of praise for the show and the writing of this show but this show works because of hundreds of people taking the time to really put the care into it that we see on screen and it's not something that is just rushed out because we said we would do Andor. It's something that they clearly took the time to develop and honestly provides a lot of hope for what we can get from Star Wars in the future. Nice. So, all right, Devor, I'm going to swing it back to you and let you do your number two now. All right, my number two. So Andor is a story about the Rebellion. Spoiler alert. We've gotten a lot of stories about the Rebellion and... As a result of that, it is hard to come up with a new archetype of rebel that we have not seen. You know, there, there are different kind of classes mm. of rebels that we get. You know, you get the the person who starts out and they're in it for themselves and then they kind of come to the larger cause. You know, a Han Solo, a Jyn Erso, a Cassian Andor. You've got the Imperial Defector, you know, Callus, uh, Lieutenant Gorn. So on and so forth. You've got those hero of the rebellion wedge Antilles. Hero of the rebellion wedge Antilles. You've got the inside person. You know, a Mon Mothma, a Bail Organa, something like that. So, so it's hard to come up with a, a type of rebel at this point that we really haven't quite seen a person like them or like the particular, you know, slot that they fit in or a thing that they do. And yet, Andor managed to do that by giving us, I think. I would argue a distinct type of rebel, at least within the canon storytelling. Oh, I can't And so wait. my top number two goes to Comrade, because that is always how I refer to him, oh. Comrade Karis <laughs> Nemec, who I absolutely love. This guy is so good. He, he has some of the best lines in the show. You know, his, uh, you know, his whole conversation about, like, the pace of change being too fast for us to respond to it. It's easier to hide behind 40 atrocities than one. His conversation on the, um, on the hill with Cassian where he's talking about, like, oh, when I can't sleep, I write. And it's like, well, like, you, like, I, I can't sleep. I'm restless because I believe in things. And, like, you don't believe in anything. That's how you can kind of sleep like a stone. And all that, and then when we get the little bits from his manifesto in the finale are really good. So, yeah, I think that, like, you know, unfortunately, the the line poet with a blaster has been wasted on the master codebreaker because it much better fits charismatic. You know, this, a guy who is at once a fighter, you know, he is on the ground, he, he is, you know, he's doing the rebel stuff, but he is also a theoretician of rebellion, I think is a really, really fascinating combination that we haven't quite gotten among our kind of motley crew of rebels. Hmm. Because we've gotten, you know, characters like Hera and stuff that believe in it, Mothma that believe in it for a very real purpose and have a very clearly defined mission. But yeah, Nemec's different because he's presenting these ideas and, and, He's rebelling, but he's more trying to define a rebellion. And I think if you were to be able to sit down and have a conversation with him, he believes that 
helping everyone understand the reason for rebellion is going to inspire rebellion where characters like uh you know Hera would be more about the action is what inspires rebellion mon motha would be you know the the politics and the the social justice is what motivates rebellion and they all have their important roles to play like it's not one thing but yeah i'm 100 percent on board with you devor that nemix is an awesome new addition to have and like there's a part of me that wants to get that whole part of his manifesto just like yes. tattooed on like freedom is a what does he say freedom is a an unprompted idea or something like that it's just like it's insane and the way they do the voiceover um of his his journal there is just it's so so good all right drew let's take it to you and uh, your number two um okay my number two is the theme of commitment and competency. Hmm. And I think that is embodied in the character of Luthen, like no one else. Um, Luthen's character is phenomenally interesting to watch as he goes, as he starts as the man behind the curtain who slips between characters easy in and out. We see him change literally his clothes and his appearance to become somebody else, you know, he to run the dealer of, of antiquities and whatnot. But then when the costs start getting real and the empire starts to wake up to what it is that he's himself has been working on and his role in things, he gets scared and he starts to th- watch things f- fall apart. And it is kind of an inverse character transition that Cassian goes under. You know, Cassian starts off very much like, I'm just winging it. Um, I don't know what I'm doing in this Aldani plot. I'm just here to make some cash and get out. But by the end, he has committed and he's building plans. He's organizing teams. He orchestrates an entire breakout of an entire prison. Um, and he just, he learns to fill this, this leadership and he develops this commitment to the ideas and his competency grows within it. But Luthen, Luthen starts with great commitment and competency in his actions and then they start to get challenged and he does his best to hold on, but he struggles when his plot to um, provide support to uh, Krieger, who we never meet in the show, which is brilliant, by the way, Krieger's plot to attack um, Spellhouse, which is evidently some kind of imperial facility, is discovered by the ISB, and then he has to weigh the pros and cons of, like, do we call off the attack and save the men? Like, do we spare them the death, or do we allow it to go because the mole I have in the ISB is more valuable than the action that the strike team will take? Um, and it's so fascinating, and it takes place in conversations with the one and only Saw Gerrera, who I didn't know was going to be in this show, uh, and could not contain my joy at having the best character from Rogue One come back in full glory in his absolute demented best. I love Saw's character so much. But one of the things that stood out to me is the way, you know, Saw and Luthen have that conversation of like, what if it had been me, Luthen? What if my team had been the one that was discovered? Would you sacrifice me? 
And what Luthen describes is that he can't do that. He needs to keep Saw safe and alive because if Saw falls into the enemy hands, he can give up Luthen. But he doesn't have that kind of connection with Krieger. He hasn't built up the same networks. He's invested too much personally in Saw because he wanted to bring Saw into his team and it did not work. And it's so fascinating to see the plans of the mastermind not coming to fruition. Saw asks him who he is, you know, because Saw has that moment where he, he starts talking about um, all the different factions. You know, Krieger's a separatist. Maya Pei is a new neo-Republican. The Goman Front, the Partisan Alliance, sectorists, human cultists. Let's stop on human cultists. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> I don't know who those people are. I don't want to meet them. I'm scared of those people. But he goes on, he says, all of them are lost, lost. And he says, what are you, Luthen? I've never really known. And do you guys remember what Luthen's answer is? I'm a coward. He is afraid. And he's afraid. And he tries to spin it. And say, I'm afraid that you know we'll never be free of this kind of oppression. But his first answer of I'm a coward is more honest than anything else he says. Everything else is tinged with covering himself. But in that moment when he says, I'm a coward, that veil is dropped. And you see him for who he truly is. He is scared. And it's just so, we don't see human, we don't see characters in the Star Wars universe admit to that failure. All of these guys are like superheroes and gods until, you know, episode eight. Granted, failure, the greatest master is and whatnot. And it's the whole lesson Luke has to learn. But Luthen learns it the hard way <laughs> at the cost of Anton Krieger's 30 men plus Krieger, which if you think about it, Krieger's 30 men plus him is the exact same men it took to bring down the first Death Star, 30 rebel ships and the Falcon. There's an interesting parallel between what could have been if Krieger's men had survived, but we don't know their fate yet. We presume they didn't make it out because it's the ISB. But at the same time, us as viewers know, it was 30 rebel ships and it took out the, 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 the Death Star of all things. Like this, It's just so phenomenal the way it's put together. That's my number two, is this, the competency and commitment. And specifically... Luthen's Luthen's uh, character. All right, Devor, we're gonna round it out. Give us your best thing about Andor. All the arcs, all the storylines are, are great and compelling in their own particular ways. My top number one goes to everything on Arkina Five. I love this place right. as a setting. I think it is. It. I mean, first off, just as an environment, it is the kind of other end of the spectrum of dystopic science fiction it's not the dystopic science fiction of like a t-1000 is crushing a human skull as there's an explosion <laughs> in the background it is like in contrast to that it is clean it's sterile it's ordered it's managed and yet it is every bit as terrifying as the other version like I just remember watching that first episode the first time and just finding that the voice of the you know the the, the prison like the prison announcer person was just terrifying every time the person came on and 
So there, so so there's that. There's there's the setting of it all. There's the space, and then there's everything that's happening on Narkina Five. That's happening in the prison, that I think is so fascinating because it's like, it's a place. I mean, it's on. You know, if you you know to connect it to sort of real world things, like there is the whole kind of analog and story to mass incarceration. These people who are getting in for kind of stupid offenses like Cassian. And they're given these crazy sentences, and then it turns out that actually no one's being let out at all because of the situation that's happening. So there's all that element. But then there's the whole element of, like, the fact that they're manufacturing things for the Empire. And it's very much structured not just as a prison, but it's like a factory where they're doing this labor, but it's very gamified, where they're in these teams and they got to beat each other's teams in order to get you know, taste in their food or not get zapped. And, you know, the entirety of Kino Loy's story where like he's a prisoner, but, you know, he's in this leadership position and he's trying to play the game. And he thinks that if he plays by the rules, he's going to get the thing he wants, which is to get out. And then he has the realization that, oh, actually, this is all just this, again, this game and nobody's getting out. And that thing being the catalyst that gets him to turn. And then he, you know, he goes from kind of abandoning his commitment to the system to then recognizing that he has this kind of common cause with the other prisoners. You know, that whole speech and, you know, the bit where he's talking about, like, if you see someone who's lost or fallen, help them, pick them up. All of like the whole solidarity message there, like there, there's so much inter- there's so much stuff in there that's like an analog for like class and the factory, mm-hmm. and it's just it's so fascinating. It's such an interesting environment. I mean, you know, other people have talked about the kind of the way that it is a kind of callback to THX, and that's definitely there yep. too. But yeah, I just love everything that that happens on Narkina 5 and just the environment, the way that operates, even just the kind of structure of the prison, the whole conceit of like the guards with no guns, the cells with no bars, the way that the prisoners are made to feel as though they're being constantly monitored. You know, that conversation between Kino and Cassian where he's like, you think they're listening? No one's listening. Like they don't care about us, but everyone in the prison is made to believe that at any time they are being monitored and at any time they could be punished really really fascinating space so yeah narkina five fear will keep the local systems in line Mm -hmm. fear of this battle station that is essentially what's happening on narkina five on a smaller scale uh that they're entrapped by their fear you know like that's that is a statement to both narkina five and most of the characters in this story like they're they're trapped by this fear and it's not until they realize that that's what's trapping them that they're going to be able to be what they can become. You could just look at Cassian and his story. You know, he's trapped by his fear that people are going to find out about his history or that he is not going to be able to find his sister, uh, you know, then losing Marva, like all of this stuff. It's just, it's breaking out of that, um, that, that's kind of to me the underlying story of of this whether they're able to or not or how they're able to or not you know like you have Cassian breaking out of his fear and Mon Mothma kind of giving in to hers uh and Narkina 5 is a manifestation of all of that and I I yeah I love it um Drew did you have anything to add before I go to my number one because it kind of leads one into the other 
As long as you don't forget me this time at the end, you should be I, I would never forget you, Drew, twice. No, I would never try? forget you twice. Um, <laughs> mine is the world building. Um, mm. Because okay. Narkina 5 is amazing, but so are all of the other places that we go. Um, like... This is kind of connected to my number two in that, like, the characters help build the worlds. But one thing I found through the various arcs and the various locations that we went to is I was upset when we were leaving them. Like, not like, oh, you know, I'm going to miss that place. Like, I need more stories on Aldani. I need more stories on Narkina 5. I, like, I need more stories on Canary. Like, this show lets you get so enveloped in these worlds and environments in such a compelling way that you could make an entire series in each of these locations and I would watch it. And that's not something that you can say about all the other shows that have been released. You know, even, you know, Book of Boba Fett, you know, was on a planet we already knew. There was already a lot of world building that had happened there. But Mandalorian jumps around to different places and while the planets are cool and you you get what you need out of them, you don't get to spend the time in them. You don't spend three episodes in them to where when you're leaving, and especially when you're leaving with as much loss as you go through, leaving each location, it's crazy to think that, you know, we lose pretty much everybody on Aldani, you know, at least half the team, and you're like, mm, no, I still want to spend more time there. There's more story to tell there. And Narkina 5, like, the, you basically just get Cassian and Melshi. You have no idea what happened to the rest of them. And you're like, mm, I kind of want to go back to the prison planet. Like, let's go back there. There's some good stories that we could tell there. So if there was ever a place where we could have one of those anthology books that Lucasfilm loves to put out with the little short stories, like, come on, just have... You, you got three books right there. Ferrix, Aldani, and Narkina 5 in the Andor short story series. And I would 100% read every single page of it. How do you feel about the, the visits we made to Coruscant? Like, specifically, like, the... The ISB offices and... The ISB Coruscant. offices might be my favorite place out of all of them, actually. Really? I, I, I would watch them sit around that table and argue for hours at a, at a time uh i was i was extremely invested in that throughout the whole um series the coruscant served its purpose what i appreciated about coruscant is that they didn't spend a whole bunch of time going around and building what the planet was because the planet in that case wasn't as important you know aldani you literally see nature trying to cling on in the fight against the empire uh devor already went into all the you know the meaning behind things on narkina 5 even ferrix you know the the planet tells a story by itself and coruscant is not really doing that in this the series so mm. i loved all the stuff on there but if essentially it happened on Coruscant because Coruscant is a planet that people know and it was the center of the empire. But I think you could tell the exact same story on Chandrilla, you know, or oh, Alderaan or whatever. Like you can't tell the same story of Aldani going to Tatooine. You can't tell the Narkina five story on Camino. Like you need these particular environments and they took the time 
to specifically build up and give culture and history and depth to these locations so that they enriched the characters and the characters could enrich them and that thus enriched the story. Cool. Nice. I appreciate that. So I think that's it. We're done. That's it. (laughs) All right, Drew. Give us your best thing about Andor and you're not allowed to say the whole thing. Well, I wouldn't say the whole thing, but um, uh, the writing is just top-notch. We have never had words spoken in a Star Wars show or movie that sound like this, and it's the best. There's no better paragraphs written in screenplays than than you'll find in this show. Um, And it really struck me just in, it, even in like the small lines, like when saw Guerrera says, I am the only one with clarity of purpose. Holy crap. Think about who's saying that and what he means. And it just will rock your world. Um, Luthen has a very small line where he says, oppression breeds resistance. And it's like, Oh my gosh, these guys are changing the game. Not only that, like, but the characters who get the monologues, we, I don't know that we really have monologues like that in the rest of Star Wars. We have a lot of good dialogue and back and forth. We have some questionable dialogue as well. Uh, but the moments that are given to these characters to shine, they shine like nothing else has. There's no comparison to Marva's um, her own, giving her own eulogy which we come to learn is a cultural thing with the daughters of Ferex, um, who and, and certain members of their society are awarded the, the honor of a, what they call a funerary stone. It's not for everyone. It's just for select members of the community. And they're given this opportunity to record one last message. And, and her speech in that message is it's beautiful it's unbelievably tragic, but kind of like we talked about before, it doesn't really end with the hope and inspiration that we might come to expect from a Star Wars closing moment, but it is kind of the spur that kicks the beast into action anyway. Um, she says, you know, in that speech, she recalls the first time she heard somebody give a similar speech. She was six years old, and she always looked forward to uh, hearing the music, feeling her history. She says, where you stand now, I've been more times than I can remember. I always wanted to be lifted. I was eager, always waiting to be inspired. Think about that mentality at a funeral. We don't attend funerals to be inspired and to be lifted up. We come together to mourn the loss of someone who meant something to us. And she says in her speech, and now I am dead, and I yearn to lift you. Wow. Like, think about that for a moment. Someone whose last fleeting moments in her entire existence, and she looks to lift up those who hear her. And she does it in this way. She goes on. She says, I want Ferex to continue. Yeah, this is me. Just I'm just going to read you most of this and, and commentate along the way. So I apologize ahead of time. Well, I, wa- I want to really. stop you at, at no, that moment. No, 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 no. I'm not stopping. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> because I think there's a, a, an important subtext in there because she says, I yearn to inspire you. That's active. You know, like mm-hmm. she's... 
she's kind of presenting whatever life you after death you believe in i'm there and i'm still working or my memory is still working like it's it's i love that it's active and not like i yearned because that would be again yeah the easy way to to do it to because she's dead you know and and she's delivering her her final message but i think it's very intentional that she uses an active voice here ferrix is all about that community right like it's built literally the bricks are the the dead like it's built on its own history its history is built on its own history um in a way that you know we just don't see in a lot of storytelling like you were talking about brandon in the in the sense of world building and whatnot in where these locations are as critical to the story as anything the characters say and do and it's all demonstrated by the actions of the people who make up those 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 communities and while early other Star Wars things give us vastly different and and wonderful places to go and visit, you know, we've never seen anything like Hoth or Naboo or Coruscant itself before the before the first time we got to experience those things, and they're they're really interesting and they're inspiring. But I think Ferrix is on a different level because of we know what goes into the road. The road is paved by those who have passed on before them, and we we feel that. And the way it's communicated, I know, Devor, you were talking about earlier about how much of this is show don't tell, and it's and it really does beautifully. So, um, the only thing I can think of that kind of compares to the show don't tell quality of the show is in in the Star Wars universe. That is is um, Force Awakens, where we spend like three yeah. or four minutes with Ray learning about her day what it looks like, what her life is like without a single bit of words spoken out loud. There's nothing like that until you get to Andor. But even in the moments where we are forced to devolve our storytelling to simple words, what words they use, uh, it, it, it's just, it's very moving um, for for those of us who, really appreciate words which is a dumb thing to say out loud but man like a good speech goes a long way like good oratory will make you stand to your feet and cheer and that's what this show does with its speeches i mean in a very literal sense within the show marva's speech inspires outright rebellion like think about the last time in just in 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 our closed-minded american history the last time a singular speech led to actual violent action it's not that long ago yeah so the power of words cannot be overstated and and to see it wielded in such a way in this show is just really moving and to come on the backs of other star wars things which are fun and great and we love a lot of these things uh we don't got anything like this in this this level of atmosphere there's nothing shooting this lofty um I, I don't want to spend time like denigrating the other things that aren't as good because I'm sure we can all think of examples of like, well, that hurts to listen to. But just to, to take a moment to celebrate just the simple like words and recitate. Like theater students are going to take Luthen's speech to Lonnie, who's his mole in the ISB. Mm-hmm. They're going to be taking that mm-hmm. and they're going to be using that as auditions. They're going to be standing there going... Um, talking about what it is they had to sacrifice for their particular point. Listen, 
Listen, listen to what Luthen says here. He says, you know, he, he lists off it, calm, kindness, kinship, and love. I've given up all chance of inner peace. Okay, we're pretty, you know, I understand what that means. Then he says, I've made my mind the sound of space. How sad is that? He says, I share my dreams with ghosts. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago for which there's only one conclusion. I am damned for what I do. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, this, this, this can find no other home in Star Wars outside of this thing. He says, um, I yearned to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I looked down, there was no longer any ground beneath my feet. Dude, that's biblical right there. Like Jesus talks about the counting the cost of what it is to follow after him. And he says, don't pick up your cross lightly, but pick it up daily and think about what it costs you to do this. And that's what he's talking about. He's l- talking out his, the rest of his life is a waking crucifixion. Mm-hmm. That's hard, man. He says, I am condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. He has given up his very soul, but in a way in which he is still witness to the death of his own soul on a moment-to-moment basis. He is watching his own death. It's just crazy. This is like, we don't see this on a, 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 a regular show about space wizards and, and pod racing. And, and it's just, it, it blows my mind. We're, we're never going to see anything this good again. And something I discovered about that speech in particular, which just adds to like the layers that it has and the writing has, is that also applies to Mon Moth. Oh, it's all of them. That's the thing. It's it's universal and in its in its specificity, in its personalization to Luthen, it becomes universal for all of you. Exactly. Mon Mothma, she has to sacrifice everything her family her husband her child her all the good that she can do for other people within the context of the senate is forfeited at a certain point oh that's so good oh most shows would they would do a a quick cut you know and and have a voiceover of his speech going to what Mon Mothma's doing and what Cassian's yeah. doing and all of those things. <laughs> you're right, you're right. We'd have a montage of action sequences. Right, going it, doesn't, it doesn't have anybody else. Like, it's just him. They don't try to make you connect to any of the other stuff. And, like, I only really kind of pieced it together as I was writing my Mon Mothma article on ClassicSabers.net right now. <laughs> uh, but I was, like, trying to round it out about, about how, you know... The rebellion is costing Mon everything, and I was just like, "Oh, the answer's <laughs> obvious." And that that literally ended the article. I was like, "I guess I'm done," because <laughs> it so perfectly and succinctly says everything that's going on with her character. And you're right; it, it goes to all of them, and it's absolutely fantastic. Devore, did you have anything to add on that before we bring it to a close here? I mean, not really. I mean, you're you're absolutely right that there's just so many just great lines. Seems like every episode seemed to deliver something. You know, I'm thinking about the, 
you know, whether you're talking about the punchy lines, like I'm thinking about Cassie's, I think it's in the last episode of the, it's in the last episode of the Arkina 5 arc, his power doesn't panic. I remember that. I'm like, oh, that's like, so good. That's so, uh, the, the Marva conversation with Cassian when she's talking about wanting to join the rebellion and she says like, I've built up it like, like a palace or something inside my head and they can't get me in there. Like, mm. that's really good. Even the like, like those, you know, the the moments that like verge on humor with some of the side characters. Like I think about a character that we have not really talked about here, which is, um, and another great performance in the show, which is the character of Edie Karn, Cyril's mother. Oh my gosh! Um, like one of honestly, one of my favorite <laughs> lines in Andor is that moment where he, uh, where he Cyril, he's having the like the the bad phone connection with his like sergeant guy and like he's trying to find out what happened and then it cuts out and then she is just like in the distance watching and she just says the mister of your former triumphs have been vanquished i can sleep soundly now (laughs) it's such a great line whose mom talks like that it's so good well and i'm really excited to see what season two has because we're getting another 12 episodes and we're getting more into the rebellion and that's going to be really really exciting i'm excited to go back and uh visit this you know whole season uh in in a year or so because i i want to do a sit down and rewatch of all of it to really take it in again before season 2 starts uh mm. which unfortunately i think we have to wait till 2024 but uh we're we're going to have plenty of content to talk about in the meantime um and there'll be plenty of uh, episodes coming out here on the clashing sabers network including now a larger view of the force so hey. make sure you are subscribed to that and uh make sure also if you're a cool person which everybody who listens to this obviously is really really cool um you could, should go over and subscribe to larger view of the force too and just uh leave devor a rating and review over there because you know let's spread the star wars love uh devor tell them where they can find you and uh all the stuff you're doing yeah, so you can find, I mean, you can, you know, starting with all the new episodes, you can find them right here in, in the Clashing Sabres feed, and then also on, on on my regular feed, where you also can find all the all the back episodes of the show, which I would encourage folks to check out. And then you can also follow me on Twitter, at a larger view pod. And Drew, you are, as always, working on articles of um, many <laughs> I know, mysteries. I feel bad. Um, but if people want to to find your musings and such, where uh, should they look? The Twitter at the Drew Brett. I'm trying to make Visions Wednesdays happen. Um, I feel like it's it's one man climbing up a hill, but it's all right. We're gonna get there. Uh, season two should be coming. I think next year is what they said. I think so. Um, so I'm excited about that and and all the different stuff there. So yeah, you find me on the Twitter. And you can find us on Twitter at Clashing Sabers, also on TikTok and Instagram under the same handle, and our Facebook page, which is Star Wars Clashing Sabers. And if you want uh, more commentaries like this and analysis of all of the Star Wars movies, you can do that by going over to our Patreon and supporting our mission to put more Star Wars books into classrooms across the country, and that is patreon.com slash Clashing Sabers. So... All of those links are going to be uh, down below for you in the show notes, so you can just click and find everything that you need, because we like to make things easy. Um, right. You know, we we talked about a lot of really good writing today, 
but we forgot one line um, that was left out of Andor. And honestly, it's a travesty, and I think they should just cancel <laughs> the series because they left this out um, because they forgot yeah. Batch 8. Hi-ho. Hi-ho. All right, DeVore, we're going to have to work on your timing a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?